welcome to Speaking of College. Welcome, it's your source for reliable knowledge. Oh, yeah. We got Dr. P as your host. As your host. We gon' tell you what you need to know. Need to know. Need to know. The more you know, the more you grow. The more you grow. The more you know, the more you grow. Grow. Get more knowledge. Knowledge. Welcome to Speaking of College. Speaking of College. Yeah. Welcome to Speaking of College, your source for reliable answers to college-related questions. I'm your host, Amelia Parnell, and today's episode is about college trends. It seems that with everything happening in the world around us, we are more consumed with news and information than ever before. In the context of college, there are all sorts of data points, op-eds, research studies, panels, and general conversations about the current and future state of higher education. So this is a great time for us to hear from Paul Fain, an expert journalist who has been writing about college trends for many years. A few months ago, Paul invited me to be a guest on The Key, which is a weekly podcast from Inside Higher Education. We had a great conversation about how colleges are helping students who experience emergencies. Now, at that time, I didn't have immediate plans to start this show. But now that I have, I'm so glad that I can return the invitation and have Paul join me for this conversation about how to interpret college-related news. This is one of my favorite episodes so far, and I hope you'll think the same. During the break, I'll tell you about a resource for college students who are parents of young children, and I'll close the episode with a question about college applications. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Speaking of College, your source for reliable answers to college-related questions. I'm your host, Amelia Parnell, and today's episode is about college trends. I chose this topic because I know we consume lots of information, and sometimes it helps to know how to identify the most important topics. That's why I'm excited to have Paul Fain as my guest today. Paul is a contributing editor at Inside Higher Education, a leading news outlet focused on college issues. Paul joined Inside Higher Ed in 2011 after a six-year stint covering leadership and finance for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Paul has also worked in higher ed PR with Widmeyer Communications, but couldn't stay away from reporting. A former staff writer for Seville Weekly, a newspaper in Charlottesville, Virginia, Paul has written for the New York Times, Washington City Paper, and Mother Jones. He has won a few journalism awards, including one for Beat Reporting from the Education Writers Association and the Dick Schapp Excellence in Sports Journalism Award. Paul got hooked on journalism while working too many hours at The Review, a student newspaper at the University of Delaware, where he earned a degree in political science. A native of Dayton, Ohio, and a long-suffering fan of the Cincinnati Bengals, Paul plays guitar in a band with more possible names than polished songs. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so um, I, I'm really excited about this episode, mostly because I think we spend our time in our day jobs reading a lot of news, um, contributing to a lot of articles, following a lot of trends. And I can imagine for those on the other side of things, trying to make college decisions, they would probably go to a search engine, maybe Google, maybe one of the other popular ones. They put in certain uh, topics and want to get information that way. As someone who helps to curate the stories, I thought it would be good for us to have a conversation about how those out there get the information that they rely on so much. And maybe ask you some expert-based questions on that stuff. But before we get into all of that, I am wearing a UC Davis shirt, which I will explain later. But what shirt are you wearing and how did you choose it? Got my Sinclair Community College uh, sweatshirt. Um, and as your listeners now know, I'm a native of Dayton, Ohio. And Sinclair is just a fantastic two-year college in my hometown. It's just yeah. so crucial to making that city work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, on a personal note, you said you're a long-suffering Bengals fan. I am a long-suffering Philadelphia Eagles fan. And the only thing that keeps me loyal is the fact that we won the Super Bowl in 2017 because I'm going to hold on to that for the next 20 years. Um, it, I'm not saying that's how long it's going to be. I'm just saying that I, I will have the dream live on, you know, through that. So I got the same first question for you that I ask everybody. Uh, I mentioned the University of Delaware is where you got your start. What were some of the factors that influenced your decision to go there? It's a great question, and sadly, it has been a bit of time since I made that decision, so there's a little <laughs> bit of uh, <clears throat> fog um, in my memory, but honestly, it, I can't even tell you. It was it was one of those things where, uh, you know, I had the luxury of being, being able to think about where I went to college and kind of find the fit that, you know, so few students really can do. Um, mm-hmm. It was a different time, you know, I, obviously from Ohio and, and Delaware is not in Ohio, um, but I had family nearby in, in Reading, Pennsylvania and did a visit uh, when I was visiting my grandparents and really liked it, just felt good. Um, and, you know, that was again, a different time in that you could go out of state to a public, by the way, Joe Biden's alma mater, uh-huh, so uh-huh. in Blue Hen land. Um, but, you know, it was, it was much more affordable, frankly, uh, to go out of state. To, to a state flagship. Um, so, but it treated me very well, even though there wasn't, a t- oh yeah, anyway, I will say there was one practical thing that I thought of, which when I think about my 18 year old self, I'm kind of surprised, I don't know where it came from, but you know, I, I did, I was excited by the idea of being near Philly and yeah. you know, striking distance of DC and New York and the, the job economies in those cities. Mm-hmm. And I'm still here. Yeah, well, glad you are here. Paul, I asked that question to everybody because I think it's helpful for people to hear and and learn a little bit more about our professional journeys and kind of what happened between the time when we started college and where we ended up. And so lots of different paths. Uh, A lot of people I talked to say they knew which school, but they didn't know what they wanted to major in. Some say they didn't know either. I would fall somewhere in the middle of all that. But I think a lot of the things that you flagged as uh, factors for you are things that other listeners would probably have also. So thank you for sharing uh, what led to you, you going there. So let's start maybe with some basics. Uh, I mentioned that you're a journalist and those who are listening, they know what journalists do. But to be working as a journalist in the higher education field, could you describe what's a typical week like for you? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a a more, it's a lengthier answer than it would have been uh, before February because things have been a little intense. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm a contributing editor now, which is a a lighter load than it was recently. Now I'm I'm pretty focused on podcasts. Actually, I'm going to be working on one as soon as we end this meeting uh, with the incoming Cal State Chancellor, who we're publishing that one today. Um, And, you know, I'm doing more of a workforce oriented coverage. So, yeah, but the more interesting Interestingly, I was the the news editor and really the buck stops here editor for a year plus um, during a very busy time. So, you know, we we while the Inside Higher Ed does have a weekly sort of schedule, you know, we have an all staff meeting on Monday where everybody talks about what they're working on. It's much more of a daily schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll, can I walk you through a day when I was news editor a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure. So it starts pretty early. And it typically starts with uh, feedback on articles. Uh, and that's a good thing. You know, I, I think one of the things that we really like about Inside Higher Ed is that our readers care a lot about our coverage and getting it right. So I sometimes would get, you know, requests for uh, corrections and clarifications. Had one of those today. Um, and we take those really seriously. And, and you know, it's, it's usually a really good back and forth. Um, and these are complex issues. Uh, 
So then, you know, a little reading, seeing what I've missed, reading all the other outlets, and I'll talk more about that later. But, you know, it, just like everybody, you know, we, we rely on reading other sources for, for you know, a lot of our, our news coverage. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, we have eight reporters at Inside Higher Ed. And I would, uh, you know, although I was the top editor, uh, you know, we have a few editors and, and each one of us has basically like an umbrella of issues that we are most passionate about or know the most about or have covered. And, you know, it's, you can't really cover it all. Mm-hmm. even in, in, in what would seem like a pretty narrow field, like higher education is not like what the Washington Post covers, but <laughs> you really do need to specialize a little bit. So I would check in with the three reporters who reported to me about their day. And, you know, inside higher ed, usually it is, you start a story and you finish it that day, sometimes the next day. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a pretty good churn. Um, then during the day, you know, uh, continuing to work with reporters, sometimes I'm writing my own thing. I was doing a lot of little blurbs on our site, live updates. And then in the evening, you're editing stories. And, uh, you know, after everybody goes to bed in the house, there's usually a couple few things to, you know, it's a full issue that you run the next morning and you want to make sure everything's right, all the headlines, all that. Paul, that is a long day. I think, you know, and to do that for so many years, my goodness. So I think you kind of answered part of it, but my, my follow-up would be, how do you find the stories? Do they just kind of come to you? So you mentioned feedback comes back from, from readers, but do people send you leads on stories or do you have certain places that you go frequently? Yes, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> you really couldn't do what we do without the field telling us what to cover, you know, yeah. uh, Back when we used to meet people in person, we'd have a bunch of visitors each day, um, you know, college presidents, faculty members, faculty groups, and those conversations where, you know, you're not necessarily pursuing a story, you're just talking about your work uh, and what's going on and what's interesting you and what worries you, that's where most of our ideas come from. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's us, you know, but I think those are not the best ideas. There's a you know, a journalism joke, like the editor generated idea is never the one you really <laughs> want to go for. Um, it should be a bubble up thing. And, you know, for the reporters, like I, I covered uh, community colleges for a long time, but Madeline St. Amore is are covering them now and she's hearing more, more current information than I'm gonna. And, you know, back when uh, I, I was not a phone reporter, but, uh, you know, a brief time as a real shoe leather reporter, you're out of the office, like you're out there talking to people. And that's how that's how the stories get to you. Uh-huh. Well, well, help me out. Sidebar, what's, what's a shoe leather reporter? What is that? Yeah, Does that somebody, mean like you've been walking and getting yeah, stories like, in person? Though, too? Yeah, like a kind of private eye term. But yeah, oh. you're out there. Like I, back in the day, you know, editors would say, I don't want to see you until you file your story. And oh. It just was, that's one of the things that really attracted me to the job. I love to just put the little reporter's notebook. I think I have one here, uh-huh. you know, in your back pocket and just like yeah. hit the town and see what you can find. That is cool. So uh, let's go a little bit broader. So I imagine with your extensive career, you know, you've been working and talking about higher education for a long time. I imagine that there are probably the current issues. We could easily talk about the pandemic and take up the rest of this whole interview, this rest of this whole conversation. But what are some topics that over the years you would say are kind of evergreen when it comes to higher education? Topics that regardless of what decade it is, what day of the week it is, it's probably going to come up. So for those who are listening and just trying to get a little bit closer to the, the daily issues, what would you say those are? Sure. Good question. And, you know, I think there are these kind of core issues, seven to 10, I'd say, that all of our stories should should kind of glom onto in some way, should, should relate to in that, you know, if you're in Maine and you're reading inside higher ed or, or you're in India uh, or Canada or 
California. I mean, you, you want to, you have to kind of have those big issues to engage you. So like if we're writing about California, make it relevant to Maine. Mm -hmm. And um, and as it turns out, uh, the pandemic just made those issues even hotter. You know, they're not new. Yeah. It's just like everything in the pandemic, they're just exacerbated or worsened or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, the big one is the challenges. One of the big ones is the challenges to the business model of higher education. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a tough one. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, that gets to budgets as well, of course. Um, and the, that's, you know, not, not all happy topics for the field, for sure. But, you know, there's also upstart models. You know, who's using ed tech in interesting ways to serve mm -hmm. students differently? I mean, so a lot of that. Um, and you think like, uh, that, well, I'll get to, to the, another issue in a second. But the, the other big one, to me, the biggest bucket is the faculty role. How's it changing? How, you know, that's you know, a, a half of our readers on, on average are faculty members, the half are administrators, and then you know, lots of folks who just care about the industry. But anything that really affects in a big way uh, a faculty member's work. Um, campus unrest, campus protests, obviously uh, racial reckoning, and you know, all the issues around that. And that gets to things you know, related to academic success and, uh, you know, finances, mm -hmm. all that. Um, and then, you know, student success is, is a big bucket itself. Uh, you know, that's, you know, really the issue. And, and as you all know, you know, student success is not just graduation anymore. It's getting a job. Uh, it's what happens after college. Um, and then, you know, I have to say the, the issue that always gets the most clicks is, is something culture war related, even for yes. us. You know, Professor X had something outrageous and people are upset about it. That's that's always gold for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the nature of the news, I think, just to get the hook there. So uh, I, I'm not surprised by the things you mentioned. I think probably if we put our heads together, we could add several more of those topics that regardless of the day of the week, they're going to be there. But let's maybe use that same shoe leather analogy, the idea if you're out there looking for something, is there a particular topic or set of topics that if you were to be sitting around a table with folks and saying, hey, these are the topics that we're talking about right now, the business model, yes, the racial reckoning, yes. Um, but here's what you really should be looking at, you know, right now. What are some of those topics that maybe aren't mentioned as frequently, maybe not in the headlines, but you think are especially important for people who are thinking about college or maybe planning to be in college or already in college that they should know more about? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you asked that question. I can get up on my soapbox a little oh, bit great. here uh, because, right. you know, while those other issues are super important, you know, these are too, and, and they don't get the attention. Um, you know, I mentioned the connection to careers. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, we all cared about that before, but we need to care about it more now because uh, this is a really tough time to be a college student. And, you know, and we, we've all seen the data you know, the finances are terrible and the disproportionate impact of the finances on uh, black and Latino and low income students as well. Mm -hmm. But it's the uncertainty, just not knowing what you're doing. A lot of students polling is showing that's that's the issue. And so like digging into that, like wh what are you uncertain about? You know, when I talk with students and we're doing more of that inside higher ed, we're, we're really trying to get more straight from the source. Um, and you'll say you know, some days, Inside Higher Ed isn't a venue that's going to have a lot of uh, man on or woman on the street interviews. You know, uh, it's more, we're pretty wonky. We're yeah. in the weeds. So, um, but, you know, I'm often surprised when I talk with students, like what, what makes you anxious these days? It's not what I would expect always. So that's, that's a biggie. Um, you know, I think states and state policies and state issues don't get enough attention. I mean, the federal government <clears throat> is largely 
inactive often on higher education, but it gets uh -huh. a lot of attention. But the states, you know, like performance funding, I won't waste too much time talking about that, but tying public colleges funding to things like graduation rates or who you mm -hmm. serve, huge, it's in like 35 states. And I just feel like it's not talked about very much. And that's partially because unfortunately the news business has become more national and less local. Um, so there's tons of stuff there. And then, uh, you know, everybody's favorite topic, accreditation, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> it's regulation done by the industry. I won't get into it too much, but it's, it's, it's dry. But this is where change happens. This is where, you know, big, big decisions about what higher ed needs to do. It's, it's accountability happens there. And, uh, you know, compared to the culture war, you can, you can take a zero off of our uh, readers for an accreditation story, but they're, they're yeah. just as important. And then, you know, the big, big thing right now is what looks like a, a really serious exodus of vulnerable students from community colleges. Mm -hmm. that, that to me is the, just the story of next year, you know, and, and you know, it's the enrollment woes for regional publics in some cases too, but the community college sector is, is in trouble and it's pretty scary what, whether or not those students will come back after all this. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is free advice, Paul. Honestly, I've gotten uh, so many notes here on my, my notepad about future topics because I think we could make accreditation cool. It's a, it's a large <laughs> lift, but I know that just maybe for the average listener, like what is accreditation? This might be a good topic for a future episode to explain, you know, how does accreditation fit into what a, a college is doing? I, so I think I might I might take on that challenge. I don't, know about, I don't know about performance-based funding. <laughs> that might be a little bit farther into the weeds, but the policy mind that I have, I, I think I could make that sound cool too. You've also mentioned a lot of what uh, some of the earlier episodes of the show have talked about, which is that intersection of college and career. And so part of it is the selection of a major. Part of it is expected earnings. Part of it is, is getting advice about what to do and when. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that these are the topics that more people should be talking about. And if this is an avenue, I might take up a little bit of an opportunity to do that. So hey, you know, you on the, the accreditation front, I got to say that they'll do it. The accreditors want to talk about this there. I yeah. found them to be pretty open to to, I have, I've had a few on my show, so mm -hmm. I encourage mm -hmm. it. They'll call them out on that and let them tell their story. Yeah. I want to make it um, plain for the listener so they know that accredit accreditation is actually an operation on the campus. I can't tell you that at any point in undergrad or maybe even in grad school that I even knew um, at the time I went to school in Florida. So it was SACS COC, you know, kudos to anybody who knows that acronym and can say <laughs> it, you know, on a dime. Um, but that that was an organization that was there to help uh, the, the campus plan for what they were supposed to be doing operationally and academically and providing resources to students. So the fact that that happened uh, and I didn't know about it, that seemed like a missed opportunity, but I know that that's not every college student's top of mind topic, but I think it no. could be. And so you made a case. Thank you, Paul. Sure. So this is a good warm up. We talked about the basics and uh, your role as a journalist and how you find stories and what those topics might be for now and for later. We're going to go to the break and when we come back, let's make it personal. We're going to talk about some things that those who are consuming information can do to weed out the maybe the proverbial noise and get to the root of the issues and help them make some decisions from what they're hearing and seeing out in the public. So going to go to the break. When we come back, I'm going to give you the ask the expert section and give you some little bit tough questions, but ones I know you can answer. Sounds good. Did you know that according to a 2018 analysis from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, more than one in five undergraduate students, or 22%, are parents? That's right, and if you are currently in college and a parent, there may be resources available to help you. 
For example, if you have a lower income and you're a parent, it could be worth it to see if your campus is connected to a program with the acronym C-Campus, which stands for Child Care Access Means Parents in School. It's a federal program that helps low-income parents in college with child care services. Not every college participates in the program, but it's worth checking into. If you're interested, reach out to the Division of Student Affairs to learn more. Now you know. All right, so welcome back. Paul, are you ready for the Ask the Expert section? I think I am. Okay, well, I'll I'll go with an easy one and they'll get a little bit harder along the way. So for those of us who see the news around us all the time, we can read the news, we can watch the news. There's a flurry of information there, especially with regard to college. And it might be difficult to tease out what's the best source of information or what's the most important detail to be paying attention to. What advice can you give us about interpreting the flurry of news that we see all around us about college? It's a fantastic question. And, you know, I think we're all just overwhelmed with information. And, uh, you know, it's a big challenge in my profession of how to deal with that. And, you know, I think people might be surprised. I mean, if you're reading Inside Higher Ed, you probably care about higher education. You know, this is this is not uh, celebrity news or something really fun. Uh, and, and still, people don't read for very long. We can track. And, you know, I, I looked earlier today and the average reader was on an article engaged, you know, scrolling or reading for just 36 seconds. And you can't really get too much depth in 36 seconds. And we know that. So we try to write the stories to give people what they need, assuming they're not going to read too deeply. But my suggestion was, is, uh, you know, try to get past the headlines and the tweets and the Instagram posts. You know, I think when we just kind of consume a sea of noise of headlines, you know, TLDR, Mm -hmm. really not getting the nuance that you need. And I think, you know, instead of trying to do 100 things poorly, you know, pick a few, pick a few stories or articles that you want to read or that you don't want to read, you know, do something that's kind of out of your comfort zone, read that article on accreditation, give it a shot. (laughs) And, you know, I think also a good way to kind of flesh out your understanding of an issue is to you know read a range of sources. Like if it's a, a big higher ed story, I'll read the journal, the Wall Street Journal, you know, the Washington Post, Politico, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Ed Dive, you know, like a few sources to see, you know, what did we miss here or what what angles could we have taken? And I think readers can can do that too. Mm-hmm. That's a great suggestion, Paul. Thank you for that. And in the show notes, I'll put some links to some of our other outlets there in the, the community of higher education reporters. So next question is going to require you to pull back into your experience when you worked on a campus newspaper. So now I'm thinking about this question for the audience of current college goers. And around them, of course, they could tap into their phone and get social media information. They could tap into the Wall Street Journal and some of the other more public national outlets. But they still are on a campus and the campus has a newspaper. So what advice would you have for college students about how to digest information at a local level from their campus newspaper in the balance of also what they would see probably on social media, making some assumptions, but they might also be plugged in heavily to social media and things like that. So what advice would you give college students about how to interpret news? You know, I, I, I would love to deflect and not share this with your audience, <laughs> but I am old enough that when I was in college, you know, we had just gotten email. I remember I was skeptical that it would be, it would stick around. And if only I had known that most of my life would be, you know, when you ask like the, the life of my, of a journalist, I pretty uh-huh. much answer email like everyone else, you know, that's most of my work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we, you know, the internet was in its proto state and we, we, everything we got was from paper, you know, and it was more curated. It was more, 
you know, we, the, the student newspaper, which was just hugely read back then and still doing great, the review, uh, produced a lot of great journalists at the University of Delaware, um, you know, had more of a control over the conversation. And, and I, that is not, everything has fragmented. So, and I really don't even know what, what a student's news consumption is. Like, it, it's a great question. It makes me realize how little I understand about how folks get information today. Um, but yeah, again, I think that that rule from that last question applies. I think you really do need to, to go in some depth to understand things. And people have probably heard this before, but if you see something that outrages you, and we often do these days, Mm-hmm. Now take a step back. Don't necessarily be cynical, uh, but be skeptical. And you know, is there a reason? Was my were my buttons pushed in a way that might not be fully nuanced? You know, I think that's important for everybody, but particularly younger folks who are trying to make sense of the world in, in some new ways. Um, you know, one thing I do. You mentioned ca- campus sources, but I think from a, a mainstream. Uh, way of looking at news, I think it is important to look at a range of, of outlets. And, you know, every morning I read the Washington Post. I also read foxnews.com mm-hmm. and I, I get a couple newsletters uh, that summarize coverage on the more partisan outlets uh, on the left and right. And it's, it's just helpful to get a sense of flavor of what matters to people outside of your bubble. And I think students could benefit from that. And then just, mm-hmm. you know, one other tip, you know, click on some of the links in a piece or on a, a Facebook post. I guess students don't use Facebook anymore. I just outed my I've age again. I've heard that. Yeah, I, I, that's okay. I have a great response after you, if you answer this question that will make you know that you're not the only one. Yeah, Continue well, on though first. Okay, well, I'll be brief, but yeah. Oh, no, 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 no rush. Clicking on a, a source document or, you know, often data, you know, like if, you, if you're reading about uh, unemployment, like the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics website has pretty accessible facts and you can make some conclusions on your own. And I think, you know, for me, uh, we try to do a little fact checking in our coverage. And, you know, I I checked on this before uh, this meeting. Um, You know, I did a piece in January, which was a very different time. Uh Um, But President Trump had said that he personally had saved historically black colleges and universities. And so we decided, let's just see if that's true. And, uh, you know, I, I did this article, not in a day, but in an afternoon. And it's really great. You know, that's the thing about journalists. Thank you all of you out there who take my calls with like, I have an hour to speak with you. And yeah. can you talk, you know, people took my calls and uh, it turns out that the president's statement was not true. And, but there was some nuance in there too. I mean, the administration has been supportive of HBCUs in certain ways. Um, anyhow, so I did this piece and it's going to be our most read article of the year. Whenever, wow. like during the Republican convention, if you if you Google Trump and HBCU, it's the top thing. Um, and, cool. you know, and yeah, it makes me proud. Like it's a nuanced piece that, you know, you, you probably have to, you know, finding pieces like that to, to do a fair treatment of a complex issue is just so important. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, lots of outlets do that, but I think when you can find like the fact check article, it's really mm-hmm. helpful as a grounding of where things are. Paul, that's a really good um, plug for the importance of going deeper, you know, with the news. And so I'm going to I'm going to add to that and share some advice that I typically give when someone asks me about choosing a major uh, specifically for grad school. And they say, well, I'm not really sure what area of higher education I want to go into. My very first piece of advice is that they follow their patterns. And I say, if you happen to read Inside Higher Ed or The Chronicle or any other news outlet, what types of articles do you find yourself gravitating to all the time that you would stay reading and that you would click through most often and, and try to go down the rabbit? 
rabbit hole. That's usually an indicator of where your interests lie and where you might spend most of your time because graduate study at that point requires a lot more energy um, and a lot more reading and writing. And a good way to do that is to start with the news and see how your reactions would be if you have um, reactions of I agree. Why do you agree? If you don't agree, why don't you agree and, and get into the habit of kind of writing those out? And so this also gave me another idea for a future show. It might be speaking of college writing and um, how you might form your, your, your case on stuff. So just to not leave you out there, Paul, uh, when I was an undergrad, um, the, the summer after my first year is when I got my first hotmail email address. <laughs> and that was only to send one email to a friend who had written me on Hotmail. I didn't even know how to use it. I had to go to the, the library on campus. I didn't have a computer and get on Netscape Navigator. Now, mm. I think I've sufficiently dated myself. <laughs> and uh, those that are curious, don't go to Google and see when Netscape Navigator uh, was founded. But yeah, that that you are not alone, Paul, on that one. So my next question is kind of looking a little bit farther out. And so I think a lot of the signals, be it because of everything that's happening in 2020, the year that none of us will forget, um, plus a lot of things that happened before all of this happened, maybe 2018, 2019, we started hearing news that there would be everything from an enrollment cliff to certain sectors. And by sector, I mean like um, types of institutions, so public four-year, private four-year institutions, that higher education as a whole, as an industry, would likely look very different five to 10 years you know, from now. Uh, unfortunately, I think that change in look and feel is going to be sooner than that. But I'm looking for some good news. And so the expert question I have for you, are there any particular bright spots that you think someone who's coming to college for the first time or returning to college after a while or just curious still and interested in going can look forward to in the future? And if so, what might those things be? I love the direction you took this question, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because <clears throat> I think a lot of what I might have said would be downers. Um, but the yeah. thing is, there there is reason for hope. You know, I, I part of a college leader's job is to encourage hope. And, uh, you know, it can go too far. I've heard toxic positivity from some students interview. Like, but, but, you know, we need to focus on some of the change here that, that can be positive. And I, I come away from my podcast often feeling like, you know what? things might be okay, you know? Um, so anyhow, I, you know, I'm a, 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 not a cynic again, but skeptic and, you know, having covered issues where we thought big, big change was on the table that fizzled many times, you know, I, I was, I covered the MOOCs, the massive open online courses. Yes. I don't know how many years ago, that was eight or so. It was gonna change the world. New York Times called the year of the MOOC. Well, it didn't, um, you know, those companies <laughs> have changed and they're doing really cool stuff now. But it turns out, you know, one of the founders of one of those companies said there would only be like 10 universities worldwide by 2050. I think, I think I'd take him up on that bet. I think a lot of instant, higher ed is incredibly resilient. I mean, these brands yeah. last way longer than companies, you know, so it's good. Iterative change is usually this, this smart bet. Like it's going to change, but it's going to take time. I don't know. Right now, like I'm questioning that. I mean, it feels like there's so much on the table. Uh, it's a really exciting and scary and, and often negative time, but mm -hmm. there's a lot that's possible. So on the positive side, I think online education's positive side is going to be here in a big way for a long time. And like hybrid options where, you know, depending on what your life is, you know, doing more work online and some in small groups and, you know, uh, the hybrid online in-person options will only expand after this. Like that, that, that is, that box is open and it's open at every, every type of institution. And, and I think on, on net, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all have to do it better. We have to, to find ways to serve students who have broadband access and other access issues better, but on the whole, I think it will help students fit 
hire it into their lives better. I hope so. Um, and then, you know, related point is the kind of short-term credentials. So like, you know, uh, there's a tremendous interest in uh, folks who, who are like, and there's so many folks right now who don't know what they're going to do, uh, find a job, change careers, uh, whether or not to go back to college. The attraction of something short, you know, getting a certificate in six months or a year is, is very high. The enrollment hasn't followed that yet. But I think part of the reason is because they're not sure employers will value these credentials and whether they can lead without losing time and money to a degree, which is still the best way to find a, a well-paying job and be mm-hmm. in the middle class. But I think, you know, the, the pressure on the system, maybe there'll be more better short-term options that will stack up to a degree. Um, and then, you know, kind of related, I think the institutions that do really well online are just doing better. Uh, you know, I think Arizona State and Southern New Hampshire and Western governors, just, just fantastic models in, in many ways. And, you know, their partnerships with big employers are only going to get deeper. So where you can really see an online credentials uh, tie to the job market, hopefully will get better. Um, and just a couple quick other points. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I think we all realize that uh, being a student is really hard right now for a lot of reasons, but, you know, mental health mm-hmm. and uncertainty and anxiety, I think, you know, the pandemic has centered the need there. And I know you at NASPA know all about this, but, um, you know, hopefully that attention will get college leaders and the industry writ large to put more resources there where they can um, and have a better understanding of how to help students mm-hmm. um, in an online environment. And then on uh, the, the final piece is, you know, this administration, we just, I guess, found out yesterday that we will yes. officially have a new administration uh, that won't be uh, President Trump. You know, there's a lot on the table right now. Uh, you know, I don't know if it will happen or there's any chance of happening, but doubling the Max Pell Award mm-hmm. is a legit policy priority for folks now. Like that, the, the impact would be unbelievable. So, and there's, you know, a free community college, uh, debt forgiveness. So I think um, it looks like the federal government in some ways is interested in putting more money towards uh, lower income and vulnerable students, which could be very positive. Oh, absolutely. And Paul, I don't know if you just picked up on what I picked up on, but if we tie this answer to the question earlier in the first half of the show about the topics that continue to swirl and become evergreen, this is uh, related to those topics, but a more positive spin. And it's not even really a spin, honestly. I see so many bright spots, as you've described them, in there between uh, mental health and being more precise in our ability to to serve students in that regard. Credentials, you know, we've, of course, been um, offering students formal degrees since the operations of college, but to have them be stackable and short term is a really nice way to, to add some um, some bright spots around the conversation about what currency they have. Yeah, just, just one point on that, because I think it gets it, uh, an understanding of the news business that a lot of people don't have. You know, it's not that we're looking for negative stories. It's that we're looking for stories where there's change and tension or disagreement about how to do things. And, you know, th- this can be a positive. Yeah. You know, like these are things that are on the table that people disagree about. But that I think, you know, there, there is a hopeful, it's not just a, uh, it's not just about something bad that's mm-hmm. happened. Absolutely. I think this is a really good indication of the news that we can expect. We are still in the middle of a very difficult time. And you mentioned toxic positivity. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Well, help me out. What, what does that mean? Because uh, I have an idea, but just... Yeah, you know, it came up in a couple interviews I, I did with undergrads during the pandemic. And 
was this, you know, really deep frustration with their campuses that I, I, I would push into a little bit and was surprised about it. Um, you know, I think for some students, and this is not a scientific poll here, this is Paul talking to a few yeah. people, um, you know, it, the idea that the, the college president's messages to you are, we're going to get through this, you're resilient, I know, uh, you know, it's going to be great, we're great, we're sticking together, belies the fact to some students that they are really freaking out. And yes. this, this, you know, how can, as one student said better than I can, but I'm always, and this is sincere, like whenever I talk with students, I'm like, how are you this polished? <laughs> I, I couldn't do, I, I'm still not polished. Yeah. Um, you know, digital natives, all that stuff too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she, she just said like, I, I, I don't have a sense that you all know what's happening or what jobs are going to be available for me for, so don't like kind of gild the lily here. Yeah, that's a great point. And I imagine uh, the conversation you have are similar to the ones that we had with some students uh, in probably April, May about communication specifically and the types of messages that they were looking for versus the ones they got. And it's not really a critique so much of the administration of those campuses so much as it was them saying, just give it to me straight. You know, I know, <laughs> I know that if I don't know what's coming, you don't know what's coming. So that, that same point, and they were kind of confused, like some of the messages fell short, like, okay, what do I do next? I just want to know what do we do next? And if you don't have that, then it's okay to say it. So, but and I think you know, there's also, go ahead. Just real quick. I it was often connected to doubting yourself, you know, and, and that I hadn't thought of, like, if I'm being told everything's okay, and I don't feel like it's okay, is there something wrong with me? And right. I, I would never have thought about that. No, as, same. So I think, Paul, I, I've asked you enough expert questions uh, for one episode. I got to save some for later, although I feel like this is an open invitation for you to join me again at some point later. But until that time, I have the same wrap up question. And it's the one that I ask everybody. So in the beginning, you mentioned where you got your start and what that was like and some of the factors that influenced your decision. If we're thinking about the future and 2020 is coming to a close, let's think about 2021 and the likelihood that maybe there's a student who's coming and hopefully they'll be going to, to college at some point in 2021 and you get an opportunity to prepare a backpack for them what's something that you would put in that backpack and why such a great question uh and you know i think i think we you know we being people who care about higher education if i've been covering it for 17 years which is disturbing to me how fast that <laughs> goes um but you know i think the idea that so much of where students struggle is that they don't have people that they can reach out to who know how college works and you know, this, this feeling of confidence about navigating the system. Like I, I came into college having parents who went to college who I could ask about things like picking a major or, you know, being a, a liberal arts person and what sort of jobs are there. And I, I think, you know, that's not the case for first-gen students and, uh, you know, so many students out there. So to, I was trying to think of something that could help on that front. So I think I would, I would want to have like an address book that I would slip in that backpack okay. with a few mentors, uh, you know, uh, friends or family who you, you can feel comfortable asking those questions like what is a registrar, you know, uh, that's the one that people use, but it's, it's much more than that and things I wouldn't even think about. Um, and to that end, to help there, to, um, I, would, I would look for a book that would be about asking for help and why you should do it. Um, yeah, and if I couldn't find a good book there, maybe a book on career exploration, um, because I think we make a mistake, again, I'm talking about society writ large, uh, you know, thinking that students are just going to find that 
Um, I mean, it's really hard to do. It was hard for me. And I had a lot of opportunities to kind of figure out what I'm going to do after college. So I think the more, the earlier thinking about that, that you can do, the better. Paul, I want the backpack now. I think your answer reflects a lot of the things that we talk about on the show that would make a college student successful. And one of those things is, of course, knowing how to navigate the environment and know what resources are available to you. The network and the community itself is also a huge thing there. And just actually having a tangible resource that you can go to as an indicator that you're not alone and that there are resources out there to help you. So I think in the spirit of that, I have to be transparent and say that you and I did my first interview when I got to NASPA. So when my very first pieces of work uh, you reached out and it was it was a great feeling so since that time five six years ago we've stayed in touch and I've really enjoyed it so I have you in my address book which led us to this conversation so if that's not proof enough I can say that in 17 years you covering higher education is a great indication that I think the future of college will still be around it'll look very different but I'm I'm very optimistic that the changes that we'll see will be for the better and so we need more conversations and more trends to follow and more stories to read and so thank you for your contributions so far I've really enjoyed getting to know you and thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me and, and thanks for the access over the years. Cause as we said earlier, <laughs> I couldn't do my job without it. And I, I, you were on my first podcast episode. I was, so I was. That, so happy that's to a have leap you. of faith, you know, it's <laughs> like, wait a minute, this guy doesn't even have a show. What's he asking me to do? So, but you know, I, I, I like to make the case that, you know, helping us do our job better helps everybody. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, Paul, it was a pleasure. So I'll put links in the show notes to all the resources you mentioned, some of the other press outlets and things like that. But in the meantime, Paul, I wish you the best with the, the future stories you're doing and the podcast you're recording later today. Thank you for all you do to help us follow the trends that are so important in higher education. Well, thanks, Dr. Parnell. Take care. All right. It's time to ask Dr. P. Ask Dr. P. Ask Dr. P. Get the S's that you need. Today's question is from Maggie in New York. Maggie writes, Dear Dr. P, how many colleges is a good number to apply to? Maggie, this is a great question, and I have four things for you to consider for each college that you might want to attend. The first is to think about how your skills and interests might align with what the college offers. For example, as you think about the types of professional work you might enjoy, try to find out if the college has programs that would give you the opportunity to pick up skills in those areas. The second thing is to think about the actual cost of each college after you've considered any scholarships, other financial aid, or additional resources. As we discussed in episode one, it's important to understand the price of tuition and fees in the context of how much you would actually have to pay based on the money available to you. The third thing to consider is the type of experience you'd like to have. For example, if the college has a physical campus and on-campus housing, it would be good to learn more about those offerings. You could also visit the college website to learn more about the clubs and activities that are available. Last but not least, you should consider the admission requirements. Many colleges might require a personal essay or other items that might take you time to prepare. So in terms of the actual number, Maggie, I'll leave that up to you. But regardless of the number you choose, if you think about these four factors, I think the process will be a little bit easier. I also encourage you to apply to college early if you can. Thanks again for a really good question. If you're listening to this show and you have a question about college, you can write me at amelia at speakingofcollege.com and I'd be glad to answer and maybe feature your question on a future episode. For now, that brings this episode to a close. It's likely that we will continue to hear and read lots of messages about college today and in the future. I hope this episode will be an evergreen resource for us all as we continue to interpret so much information. If you like this show, please consider subscribing and leave me a comment and I'll be back with you in Speaking of College again soon. In the meantime, I hope you have an inspiring day.